0: Welcome to episode 115 of The Proper Mental Podcast. It's a big one this week. I've been looking forward to putting this out for quite a while now. But my guest this week is Mr. Alistair Campbell, who is a journalist, an author, a broadcaster and a mental health campaigner. He's probably best known for his role as former British Prime Minister Tony Blair's spokesman, press secretary, and the director of communications and strategy for the Labour Party. And he's also a long-time campaigner for mental health, and he's worked with some of the UK's biggest charities and organisations. He's written two personal memoirs about depression and the pursuit of happiness. And in 2019, he made the documentary Depression and Me for the BBC. And in this episode, I chat to Alistair about the work that he does in the mental health space and where his passion for this work comes from. We chat about his own experiences with psychosis and depression and addiction and about his brother Donald, who had a lifelong struggle with schizophrenia. We also chat about cold water swimming, his love of Burnley FC and how his depression impacts his family. And we talk about giving up alcohol, the importance of physical health, and how he takes care of himself. And Alistair takes me through the jam jar technique, which is a technique that he uses to manage his own mental health. We even managed to chat a little bit of politics towards the end too. Not too much, but I couldn't let him go without at least asking him something political, right? This is such a lovely episode. This one's been in the works for a little while. I probably emailed Alistair two years ago maybe? The first time anyway. I've emailed him several times since and his schedule was so busy we weren't really able to put anything together. But you know every time he emailed he always got back to me. He was always lovely about it. He just couldn't do it. And then a few weeks ago I was in the library and I saw his book Living Better on the shelf so I decided to get it out and I was reading that book. It's an incredible read. It's a a wonderful memoir. Alistair has had an incredible life. He's done some amazing things with some amazing people and All the way through that, he's been juggling various mental health challenges. Yeah, and I was really enjoying his book and I thought, you know what? I've not emailed Alistair for a while, so I'll just check in. So I did exactly that and he got nearly straight back to me and he said, I'm free on Wednesday morning. And luckily I was free and we just went from there. So after a long time of trying, it just kind of dropped into my lap. And that was probably the best way for it to happen, to be honest, because I was quite nervous going into this conversation Alistair has a reputation for being very upfront. You know, I think calling a spade a spade is probably the right way to put it. And I was thinking to myself, you know, am I cut out for interviewing this man? I'm going to have to bring my A game, right? Because if I get something wrong, he's going to have me on it. But you know what? He was the nicest man. There was no need to be nervous at all. I found him to be really warm, really compassionate, very funny. You know, we laugh a lot in this. He makes a lot of jokes and he's been talking about this mental health stuff for a long time. He has a really good understanding of mental health, of his mental health and how it impacts him and how it impacts his family. And we cover a lot of ground in a short space of time. I cannot thank him enough for his time and his openness. It was just a wonderful experience all around. He's one of those guests where I don't really need to tell you where to find him, but his social media links and stuff like that are in the episode notes. I've put a link in for his documentary, which is on Vimeo. It's really good, highly worth a watch. And his book, Living Better, if you haven't read it, it's fantastic. Yeah, that is highly recommended as well. As always, if you want to catch up with me at all, you can head to Podcast on all social media platforms. The best way to get hold of me is via the website. Send me an email. And if you could take two minutes to review this episode or any other episodes of the proper mental podcast it would be hugely appreciated and now that all that's out of the way with let's crack on with episode 115 of the proper mental podcast with alistair campbell thank you very much for listening enjoy So here we are with another episode of The Proper Mental Podcast, and my guest this week is Alistair Campbell. How are you, mate? I'm okay. That's good. It's good to uh, good to hear. Um, you've been talking about this mental health stuff for a long time, Alistair. Would I be right in saying that your sort of first experiences of it were via your family rather than yourself? Is that the case? Definitely, yeah. Um, my first
1: actual memory of something to do with mental ill health was when we were on holiday in the Hebrides. My dad came from an island called Tyree and we used to go there every summer. And I can't remember what age I would be, but I remember a neighbor who was being sectioned uh, on a a neighboring croft to my dad's family's croft and just being mesmerized by what was going on and people kind of whispering about it and not really wanting to confront what was going on, but fascinated by it. And, um, so that was, and I I remember sort of really being intrigued as to why this was happening. And, and then my brother, yeah, you're right. The, the real kind of big moment was when my brother Donald was diagnosed with schizophrenia in his early twenties. Um, and that was such a big thing for the whole family. And even though my dad was a vet, so you'd have thought, you know, a scientific background as it were, we didn't know anything about schizophrenia. We literally knew nothing. um,
0: so that was quite a quite a steep uh, education, really. Yeah, yeah, very much the uh, the deep end. Yeah, w- was there much? Um, like I'm tr- I was trying to think right because I think when it comes to diagnosis and labels in the mental health conversation, there's almost like layers of stigma. And even yeah. now in modern times, um, schizophrenia is is deep on that on that list. It's really misunderstood by people totally. now who haven't experienced it or, or uh, you know attached to it in any way. But so sort of like even back then was there much like resources for you to even understand what was happening or how did that kind of work? I think it was a very
1: different era. So I think that I think people had a kind of basic trust and belief in doctors. Um, And and so my brother was in the military. He was in the Scots guards. So his first port of call and where we first saw him after he was taken ill was in this military psychiatric hospital in down near Southampton. It was a pretty tough place. It wasn't uh, – uh, there were some really good people in there. There were some nice nurses. There were some nice doctors. But it was tough because this was a time – This is you might not be aware of this, but there was a time when you could buy your way out of the military. Right. Uh, so you could leave – say you signed up for X number of years, but you've decided after a year it wasn't for you, you could buy your way out and of course if you were invalided out that could save you a bit of money so there was a little bit of suspicion I think sometimes of people with mental ill health problems um Donald was really you know Donald was very quickly diagnosed with with schizophrenia um so it was different but it was quite a tough environment I mean I always remember thinking right I'm in a hospital but and I went down there and I, I went down with my dad but then I had to get back to work pretty quickly so he I don't think he even stayed down overnight and I decided to stay down there. And so I was spending a lot of my daytimes. I was, I was, at un, I was at school or university. It was just between school and university. So it was, it was the summer. I was able to sort of go and just, you know, visit him every day and stuff. And it was really, it was, fa- I, I was fascinated by the thing. I said in one of the books I wrote, the book about depression said, imagine one flew over the cuckoo's nest in uniforms mm that was what it was like and I was fascinated by it and of course always but that's the reason Donald is the reason I first got involved in campaigning on this and of course when I did start to get involved by then I'd had my own issues of depression and psychosis and alcoholism and so that became the peg by which I talked about it but Donald was always the motivation really
0: yeah sure I think when that um like you say, when it happens to people close to us, when you're kind of watching it and there is that, and I know from like my wife talking about her experiences, watching me, you know, go through stuff. There is that, um, you know, you just want to help and you can't. It's like, it's such a lonely thing, isn't it? When people are struggling and they're very much like mm. trapped in their own story and their own, um, you know, in their own, whatever is going on with them. And when you watch that happen, it's uh, it's lonely for the people watching too, isn't it? For sure. And, but what was he story about Donald? I'm just
1: looking at a picture of him now with this huge picture of him on the wall where he, he, he was, the. he, he was the official piper at Glasgow university. And he was very, very proud of that. He did that for 27 years. And, um, but what was interesting was when I can't remember when we had this discussion, but there was one point before he died when, you know, I said, I sometimes had a, a kind of, I did have sort of survivor guilt that I'd had this kind of, you know, pretty amazing life. And, done some pretty remarkable things and gone to places I never thought I would and met people I never thought I would and been involved in situations I never thought I would, whether it's, you know, meeting Mandela. And I, one of the most imposter syndrome moments of my life was when Mandela, Man, Mandela said, do you mind if I ask you some advice? I thought, I thought you know, is this is what it felt when Abraham Lincoln. Asked people for advice. And of course, yeah. And then, or playing football in Maradona, or all this stuff I've done as a result of kind of being me, as it were. And I remember once saying to Donald that, you know, I do that, you know, I can't help it. Sometimes I do think, well, why did I get this? What did I do to get this great life? And you had to do, deserve this, what you call, he used to call this shitty illness. And he said, I'll never forget it. He said, listen, Ali, he called, he called me Ali. He said, listen, Ali. He said, look, you know, I got given a bum deal, right? but I've had a great life, you know, with that. I've had a great life. You lot, it meant me and my brother and my sister, you know, you lot and my parents, you've been brilliant. I couldn't have got through what I've got through if it hadn't been, you know, he he had a completely different perspective on it, which was like he, you know, and he he had, I remember at his funeral, you know, and again, the the shitty illness took 20 years off his life, not because of the illness, but because of the medication. You know, once he got into normal infections, he couldn't fight them in the same way that, you know most people can. Um but he had an amazing outlook. And you know, I think I remember at his at his funeral, people, you know, there were so many people sort of turned up. A lot of them I knew, but a lot of them I didn't know. And they were just people he'd met and touched in his life in the past. And you know, and to this day I still get letters from people saying, oh, I didn't realize that was your brother. He played at my graduation and you know all this sort of stuff. So I learned a lot from that, from him about not just about how to manage illness, but how to kind of manage life when you've got, you know, bad stuff happening.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's such a wonderful thing to be able to do is to kind of look back at your life and go, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. Like it was good. Mm. I think that's like, that's such a, you know, that's the dream, right? That's the dream for for everyone. And And I I think, you know, the, the other thing you talk
1: about, you know, your wife and how she looks at you. I mean, when I wrote my book about, about depression and dealing with depression. So much of what I wrote was about family, and it was actually the publisher who had the idea that, that you know I'd, I'd finished the book, I'd written it, I'd sent it in, they were happy with it, and then the 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 the, editor, the publisher said, you know I think it'd be really good if Fiona wrote a chapter about what it's like living with you and 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 so forth. And you know of all, the the book did really really well, and it was a bestseller and all that stuff. But in terms of the response, a lot of the response was actually about the chapter that she wrote. Because I think so often, you know, you know this, when when you're the person who's, as it were, got the condition, you know, when you're in the throes of it, you, you, not only is all the attention on you, but you kind of feel well, that's how it should be. you feel a bit entitled about it, right? But actually, a lot of the pain that you're feeling is being transferred. A lot of the anxiety you're feeling is being transferred. And it's worse in a way because they just don't know how to deal with it. Um, and I think one of the one of the great things that's come from the book, uh, if a, your wife might want to have a look at this, Fiona has actually started this this online group of people who are living with people who are, have got you know, in this case, bad depression, but there are other people who have joined it, and they just sort of, and I think it just has given them a kind of a place to to sort of feel less alone, and yeah. f- when when
0: they're dealing with it. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's, um, it is a really missing part of the conversation, I think, is how it affects the people around us. Yeah, um, And it's funny, you should mention that, because Fiona's chapter in your book, which I've read is very, very good, by the way, but the, um, the chapter I really related to that chapter. Mm. Um, And interestingly enough, you know, for this podcast, I've done over 100 episodes, I've spoke to like a who's who of mental health. And my highest downloaded episode by far is one I did with my wife. And we went through mm. my story from her perspective. And mm. you know, there was so many people. That's the one I still get the most messages and emails about yeah. things like that, yeah. because there's so many people out there who who don't know what to do. And and mm. yeah, I, I was described depression for me it was like not it was really selfish twofold. Firstly, like you said before, when I was in it, I was really self. It was all about me. And mm. it, you know, it was not, it wasn't nice stuff, but it was still all about me. But then to get better from it. I had to make it all about me as well because I mm. needed the time. And, you know, my wife had to like take the lead with the kids for a little bit. I had to step back from work and all these different things. And so I had to be, I was selfish when I was poorly, but to get well, I had to be selfish again. And that really mm. knocks on on the people around us. Hey? Mm.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and I, you know, I look back. We Fiona and I did an event the other day um, for, a, a, it was actually for a, a group of accountants that are, that are doing some quite interesting work on mental health. And uh, so we were just being interviewed together, um, and I found myself admitting that when I'm 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 a lot better at this now, but in the old in the old days before I really kind of started to address this properly, you know, if I felt really bad, and Fiona said, you know, is it me? Is it something I'm doing wrong? What's you know, and took took the blame for herself. You know, now I would say no, you mustn't blame yourself. But back then I would just kind of. just kind of curl up in a ball and hope that she thought it was kind of thing you know and and as a way of I guess sharing the load yeah it's that very selfish feeling that if I'm going to feel like shit I really don't think I don't see why everybody else shouldn't which is it's it's a bad thought pattern that I've I've kind of I've
0: managed to fix
1: that I'm glad to say
0: yeah it's one of those things isn't it when you look at it out of context you kind of think like oh it's like almost a shocking thing but when you're in it it makes perfect sense to feel that way yeah, yeah. um i used to say the most horrendous things to my wife and um i look and i almost when i was saying them i'd almost know it like a part of my brain was going "Whoa, a bit strong that fellow what are you doing but i was kind of committing to seeing through my my side of the anger mm. and i kind of want to look back at now i think i was so desperate for help and i didn't know um how to ask because i didn't know what was happening and maybe if i could say something really fucking shocking then someone would step in and, and help me mm. and save me mm. but um, you know really ultimately as, as harsh it sounds the only person who can kind of rescue yourself is yourself when is yourself yeah. hopeless, right? i think it's interesting as well you talk about
1: you know saying we're doing something shocking i think when you said that something popped into my head the fact that when i had my first breakdown in the 1980s what the shocking thing was the psychosis and and that's what led to me behaving really oddly and being arrested and and so that was a shock that was genuinely a shock and then if I fast forward because what happened after that this is the other thing that came out of this talk because what was the other thing that was really interesting was that when we were quizzed about it together on this platform, we have completely different recollections of the whole journey of that we've sort of gone through together. There's me saying, you know, I've I've never regretted being open and once I had my breakdown and blah 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 and Fiona said well it wasn't really like that you were open about having a drink problem and you stopped drinking you thought that you were you know you were going to cure yourself but actually you never addressed the depression and it was only in 2005 when not far from here up in Hampstead Heath I was beating myself up physically and that was shocking. That was another kind of, this is, this is like shocking. I'm standing here in a, again in a public place with Fiona, who I've been with for, you know, now 42 years, then 30 odd years. And I'm punching myself in the face till I'm bleeding. And she's looking at me like she's sort of terrified and I'm feeling terrified. and I'm. But even as I was doing it, I was, I was, it's like you say, I was, I was saying to myself, this has gone too far. You've got, to. you can't do this on your own. You've got to get help. And I had a friend, Philip Gould, who sadly is now dead, but he'd been nagging me for ages to go and see somebody. Um, And I went back and I phoned him up and I said, give me that guy's number. Uh, And it was that shock. It was the shock to my system by something I was doing myself and seeing the reaction of other people that made me
0: do it. I've had many, uh, um, almost like an out of body experience where I felt like I've watched myself do something that's quite, you know, it's, the, it's a very weird, uh, like almost separating uh, yeah. from yourself. But it always amazes me how um, resilient as humans, like how long we can suffer for. And, mm. you know, sometimes it is those those shocking moments that inspire us to go and get the help or to reach out or for someone to mm. take control of the situation. But crikey, we can suffer for a long time, can't we? We mm. can just kind mm. of sit in that horrible space for as long as possible. And I think um, something I always think is that that space was so familiar to me. The idea of stepping out of it was pretty scary, you know, and like, sometimes mm. it's like, uh, you know, like you, your current situation is rubbish, but, you know, every inch of that. That rubbish mm. and the idea yeah. of asking for help and doing something different that might be scarier that might be worse you know there's mm. almost a control thing about it i don't know if that mm. resonates mm. at all yeah i
1: know what you mean it's like it, it's like it gives you a the, the patterns of it give you a kind of weird sort of comfort um i'll tell you what i do get a bit of strength from when i do sort of go into a dive now i i, I, I have been able in recent years to say to myself oh well i've been through worse you know, and that kind of allows me. But at the same time, I do, I do understand, I do understand why people, you know, why the pain gets so intense that people just feel they can't carry on. I do understand that, you know, both rationally and irrationally. I understand both of those, those feelings. And it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's it's interesting that I think I think it's it's um, it's like a never-ending. I I now describe what I call my relationship with my mental health. I almost see it like a, like a, like a a person thing and have a relationship with it. I I address it. I talk to it. I, 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 I acknowledge its problems. (laughs) I try to help it. (laughs) How can I help you? (laughs) You're having a really bad day today. What's
0: this about? Tell me about it. Yeah, that's okay. um, that's interesting. But there is a level of like, I suppose, acceptance about that, right? And I, you know, I like, I was deterred. I didn't tell anyone I was poorly, and I was determined to. I was gonna, I was gonna fucking beat it, man. I was gonna wrestle it. I was gonna. And it was only really once I kind of stepped back, and it was like, oh, mm. hang on a minute, this ain't going anywhere. I've got to make peace with this. I've got to accept. And that mm. acceptance opened a lot of healing doors for me. And you know, mm. it sounds like that's uh, quite familiar. Yeah, thing, like, they're making they're peace they're with it.
1: Something very similar. Yeah. And it's interesting, you keep using the word poorly. I've never thought of the word poorly. Poorly to me is always about feeling very weak physically and having a cold and, you know, not, whereas I always describe it as I feel, I feel weak. I don't mean spiritually weak, I mean physically weak. I feel ill. I feel empty. I feel lost. Uh, I feel, I feel sort of soul destroyed um but i've never I, I, it's funny i've never i've never thought of myself as being poorly <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: in those I, quite, circumstances.
0: yeah I, I suppose i often use that to describe it yeah when when i was poorly that's quite often although if i had you know i still have some ups and downs now and if i had a, a bit of a bad week last week i probably wouldn't say i was poorly last week you know so maybe i'm talking about the the, the depths of it mm. um, but yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to think mm. think about that a lot. And um, you mentioned, um, you know, when these things first started to happen for you, Alistair, back in sort of '86. Mm. Did you did you see that coming at all? Was that on your radar at all? That first uh, that first breakdown.
1: Not really. No, I felt I felt there was a, I felt I was very aware of drinking too much. Uh, I was aware of waking up every morning feeling ill through drink. I was aware, you know, I was I was aware of waiting for you to go out for a morning swim so I could go and throw up. Uh I was aware of feeling a bit hyper quite a lot of the time. I was aware of having to dig really deep to find the energy that people thought I had, because I was always somebody who had a lot of energy. Um, and that was making me very tired and very stressed. But no, until until the day when I started to feel kind of. Very exhausted, very stressed, very anxious, very out of body. Um and then when I started to hear the voices and 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 see things and not be able to work out what was real and what wasn't, that's when and and you know, inevitably my my initial sort of anxiety was that this was the same as Donald had. I remember, I remember, I remember there was this, it's so weird how your life works, right? So the actual place where i got arrested was uh in scotland and i'm you know i'm even though i've always lived in england i've always considered myself scottish i was with neil kinnock uh so the labor party's in there we'd just been to see gordon brown in his constituency gordon was just a young mp at the time um and because neil was speaking at this thing uh this event and i was trying to phone home and i couldn't find a phone there were no mobiles those days and eventually i found a phone but i was every time i dialed zero to phone home i was going through to an unmanned switchboard because it was a saturday in a council building so i phoned home no reply phone again, no reply I Phoned my parents phoned my brothers phoned my sister phoned my friends i even phoned the switchboard of burnley football club and i was just phoning all the numbers in my head that i had in my head and no reply, no reply. So I was getting, I was feeling more and more kind of isolated, and anxious, what have you. I go down to this foyer. And because Neil Kennett was there and he was being, he'd been piped into this dinner, right, by a guy playing the bagpipes. I play the bagpipes. My brother plays the bagpipes, played the bagpipes. And so this guy's walking past, he's carrying a set of bagpipes and he's wearing a kilt, right? So I stop him and I say, is this because of Donald? And like you know, he looks at me like, what the fuck are you on about? You know, it's like, <laughs> but as part of the paranoia that was going on, everything around me was, was sending me messages. I remember these, these buses going by with adverts on the side, and I was trying to decode the message and all this sort of stuff. Um, so all that stuff's happening. And I now know it's, it was unreal, you know, the guy was right to look a bit perplexed as to why I said to him, you know, is this about Donald? He was, not unsurprisingly, he said, Well, who's Donald? Right, you know, and I said, Well, oh, then and then you go into this really quite deep paranoia. Uh, by the time I was in the police cell, I was I was I was absolutely away with the fairies. Took all my clothes off, banging my head on the wall. Um everything. I remember when they finally got a doctor to see me, I couldn't confront the word left or right. Or blue or red so a lot of political yeah, stuff going on yeah. there as well. wow wow yeah. that's a
0: that's a that's a lot right mm. and I'm, I'm really interested in um in like the recovery process from that you know because i think it's really easy like it's, it's great that we talk about these things that happen and it's great that we can show people that you can be okay and sometimes the hardest bit is that middle bit mm. and what what did that look at so you know like after you start to kind of feel more like yourself and you know that this thing's happened. What steps were you then taking to say, right, I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to try and make sure this doesn't happen again. What did that look like for you? Uh, well, the big one I
1: made was, was to stop drinking. Um, but again, in this discussion we had with Fiona the other night, her view was that that was that, that, that camouflaged all the other stuff. Um, so it was quite a slow process. I mean, I was in, I can't remember how long I was in hospital, but I was there. The psychiatrist was really good. I really trusted him. Um, when I, I remember when they let me out and I flew back from Glasgow with Fiona and I got very, very, very edgy on the plane. Um, And by the time we landed in Heathrow, I couldn't face going into London. So I went, I actually went down to the West country. I had a friend, Sid Young, who had this house in the countryside in, in the West Country, I went and stayed with him. um I just couldn't quite face the noise and the, um and it's funny now. Again, it's, sadly, he's dead as well. But you know, he used to for years after he used to he used to laugh about, you know, because I was still sort of talking rubbish and I was still convinced of, you know, I couldn't quite work out what was real and what wasn't about what when I was trying to tell people what had happened, um, and then. One of the best things that happened, well, two of the best things. One was that Fiona stuck with me. Uh, and the second was that my old boss at the Mirror gave me my old job back. So I went back to the beginning in a way. And, and, and that, that gave me a feeling of recovery. It was almost like the, because I've always been a bit of a workaholic anyway, the, the professional and the, and the personal kind of came together really well. And then I just sort of slowly, I remember with the drinking. I used to count the days I stopped counting after I was well into the thousands used to literally, I used to go to bed every night and pretend I was Jeffrey boycott at the crease. And I'd got one more run, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I didn't really, I didn't address the depression at all. Truth be told. I don't think I even identified that that's what it had been.
0: Yeah. Was there kind of a link between the drinking and the mental health stuff or? You I'm know, sure man, there must've
1: been. Yeah. I'm sure there must've been because I think it was, yeah, there must've been, there must've been. Uh, and it's funny now because I do sort of drink a bit now, but I've, I've never touched beer and I've never touched scotch because that's what I used to drink. And I now have the occasional glass of wine. And, and I think it's like, I think what it was is that I'm an add- addictive personality and that was an addiction at the time. And I've probably got other addictions now that are, you know, healthier. I'm addicted to cold water swimming. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I'm addicted to, I'm addicted to, at the moment, reading German. I just read German all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, People, people, you know, I I listen to German podcasts. I don't listen to, people keep saying, oh, you've got this great podcast. You know, well, what podcast do you listen to? I said, well, (laughs) have you heard of (laughs) Frasenmeier?
0: Uh, It's incredible, really, isn't it? How we can take those like unhealthy, uh, unhealthy things and 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 swap them over. Yeah, what fills what fills the gap because they do leave a gap. I always say that. um, I, I, you know, yeah, I've had my issues with drink as well, Astler. and um, I, I had no idea I had any form of anxiety at all until I stopped drinking. And then right. I realized how scared of the world that I was because mm. anything brave I'd ever done, I did half cut. So it was that was yeah. like my my superpower almost. And yeah. I had to kind of learn to learn to live again and, and learn how to like mm. adjust to the, to the world around me. Mm. But mm. something that sort of plagued me for a long time um was when i was coming back from this stuff i was really fearful it was going to happen again and i was always thinking like you know i turned down big pieces of work or opportunities or i played everything so safe so close to home because i was always like you know oh what if i give too much of myself to this project and i break and i go back to where i was um but i mean you went back to journalism and then into politics which is you know it that's got to be a a a, a melting pot of different things that might not necessarily be good for maintaining good. Yeah. I did about. think about
1: it a lot. I th- I did think about it. Um, so when, when I made that jump, I mean, I, when I went back into newspapers and back to the mirror, I did feel my strength coming back. Although interestingly, the very, very, very oh. first job I had back on the mirror, my, my breakdown had involved me. I'd flown from London to Glasgow I'd got involved in these various situations through the day. We'd been in this top secret naval dockyard, a lot of stuff that classically will feed paranoia and all that. And my very, very first job when I was back on the mirror, uh, was a terrorist attack at Heathrow. And I had to go out to Heathrow and I got there and I had a kind of bit of a meltdown. And again, I phoned my mate, Sid, and I said, Sid, I can't do this. And he was a, he was the mirror guy down there. He did the story for, for me from his kitchen in Bristol. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, but slowly I got myself together. And then when it came to the sort of jumping the fence to politics, um, it was, I, I thought about it a lot. Um, I remember saying to Tony Blair, you know, look, I've had a breakdown. This is going to be a lot more pressure than I've had before. And he sort of said, What well, are you worried about? I said, Well, no, a few bit. He said, Well, I'm not worried. So if I'm not worried, let's just, you know, go and see what happens, kind of thing. So I, I, and the other thing I'd say, I still to this day, I, my, my sister, for example, she thinks I've, she thinks I've not, she thinks I go on about my breakdown too much, but I use it as a yardstick now for when I'm really struggling. You know, if I'm lying on the sofa here, cause I'm feeling that shit, I, I'll say, well, it's not as bad as then, is it? You know? And I, and I find that quite useful.
0: Yeah, definitely. And knowing that there will, it will end. It might yeah. be a, a long time or it might be a short time or it could be any type of time, but mm. eventually it will pass. There's a lot of power knowing that it, yeah. it'll pass and you come out yeah. the other side. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. When you're in that um, political world, was that quite well known that you'd had a breakdown? Because obviously, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. So that was kind totally. of common, common knowledge. Yeah.
1: But yeah, Cause it, you know, I'd been a journalist. I was quite well known. I was a high flyer and it wasn't like well known. It hadn't been in the papers or anything like that, but certainly people were aware that I'd had this and they they were aware that I used to drink a lot and now I didn't. And that's, you know, so yeah, there was, there was no, I, I, I I think again, partly through the experience with Donald, my brother, I never felt shame at all. I never felt, I felt quite proud of it. Actually. I felt, I used to love saying to people, I haven't had a drink for, I used to do my party piece. I'd go with the watch and I'd go, I now haven't had a drink for 1,614 days, five hours, only eleven minutes. I could tell that, and I can't do it now because I've forgotten. Right, but I used to do. That was like a party piece, and um, so yeah, I, I, I never felt the the shame or the stigma that a lot of people have
0: yeah and that's again owning your story is powerful hey because Mm. no if you if you're owning your story and there is no shame then no one can take anything away from you based on that right it puts you in control and so much of struggling with mental health is not having control and um yeah owning it really puts you in control i think yeah 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 um, you've been through the course of uh, writing books and the documentary as well. You've kind of been on a, um, you've tried a lot of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You've really looked into sort of every corner of the earth um, to sort of look for, for cures or way to support mm-hmm. your mental health. Um, is there any that like really stood out for either being very useful or particularly, um, <laughs> particularly unusual? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Uh I've, I've, maybe it's because I once saw my brother get in the ECT, but when I did the documentary and I tried this kind of minor electrical impulse stuff, I, I was a bit scared of that, to be honest. Um, I I was really surprised when I didn't take the psychedelics, but when I was studying them as part of the TV program, I was really surprised how drawn I was to that as a possible uh, treatment uh, Cause I just saw the effect it was having on somebody who was so badly depressed that it was, you know, really sad to watch. Um, I think in the end, the thing that, you know, I, I bang on about my jam jar, this, which is just, it's just a device. It's just, a, it's just a tool toward my own thoughts by sort of layering the things that I know help me in my looking after in my relationship with mental health. Um, and I found that really, really helpful. And I, you know, I'm, I do think that, you know, the really simple things like watching what you eat and taking care of your sleep and exercise. I mean, it's, you know, I a, a joke about being addicted to cold water swimming, but the truth is I've only been doing it now for three years, two, three years. And I have had some depressive episodes, but I've got out of them quicker. And it may have nothing to do with the swimming. I don't know, but it might have.
0: Yeah. And ultimately yeah. who cares, right? Like yeah, if things exactly. are better, things are, things are and better. And the
1: thing is that, you know, since I now look after my physical fitness, you know, I, I swim. I've just this morning, just before doing this with you, I've been doing a, you know, a boxing session and I, I keep myself fit. Um, and I'm absolutely convinced that helps mental health. So these are, you know, none of these are kind of eureka moments. They're just things that I sort of wish I'd learned
0: a lot earlier. yeah yeah definitely we often learn these things the the hard Mm. way yeah i see it all as a a bit like a puzzle right and you know my puzzle is different to your puzzle and everyone some people have more pieces but you have to find those bits and and fit them in and make it work for you but yeah the exercise stuff is huge someone said to me once that mental health needs physical support and i really like that as like Mm. a little um little little catchphrase yeah Yeah, And
1: physical health needs mental support as well well true yeah you know you look at these you look at these athletes now they're all, they all look
0: after their psychology. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, definitely. And um, what led you to the, uh, to the cold water, Alistair? How did you get into all that? I don't really
1: know. I mean, I just started, I think what happened was because I used to run a lot and I'm somebody who, if I stop getting better at something or I stop thinking I can get better at something, I'd get really, really angry with myself about it. And it was obvious to me once I realized I would never be able to do a sub four hour marathon. <laughs> again uh because my legs just hurt when i run and so i was looking for different things to do and um you know i fiona swims every day she's swam virtually every day that i've known she's gone for she's swam a mile um but i started going to the lido and there was just something about as it got colder i just thought it was quite interesting and then once i got to 10 degrees i thought can i keep going most people were dropping off And there was one day, I remember a couple of years ago, there were literally four people. There's a seven o'clock queue. At the moment, it's about 30 because it's become really kind of trendy and fashionable. But there were about four of us, and it was so cold. Um, I don't know is the short answer. Uh, But last Christmas, we were up in the north, the highlands of Scotland, and Fiona and I, we found this, you know, (laughs) we are swimming in this freezing loch in the dark uh it was just incredible it was incredible and i thought yeah. oh, this is this is sort of this is what feeling alive is
0: yeah yeah definitely i think that to have those big those rushes of feelings when you know being ill depression is the opposite of that right mm-hmm. so there's something quite nice quite nice about that and um, mm-hmm. there's loads of science in it i've, I've had um, neuroscientists on and stuff and they've talked to me about the science in it and what goes on in the body but i tend to think stuff like that stuff like running there's something in it for me about controlling your suffering, you know, it comes down yeah. to, you know, putting rather than uh, suffering with seemingly out of my control, but putting me back in the driver's seat of how mm. much I can endure. There's something mm. that I quite, I quite like about that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the, um, the football's important to you too, as well, Alistair, like that plays a, a Burnley <laughs> play a big part. Yeah,
1: it life. does. It's part, and, and they're, they're, a Burnley's in my jam jar. And, and that's, I think that's about belonging. I think that's probably, my sister's a quite a big believer uh Christian and she sort of jokes about you know my religion's real yours isn't sort of thing you know the football but it it is that sense of belonging to something I think um and it's yeah it it's it's I, I don't I don't do that thing of you know I, I never I don't think my health mental health is affected by winning and losing um I think it's I think I even when we lose I feel i got something out of going there today, you know. Uh and at the moment we're not losing very
0: much, so it's good. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I'm a Swansea City fan and sort of did us 4-0 right. four, four at Moor earlier Yeah, day, So yeah, uh, yeah, good I think we're playing Yeah, I bet, yeah. I think we're playing again in January. So yeah. uh we'll have to have to see who comes back from the World Cup. But um yeah, it's um it's fascinating. There's something about being part of a tribe, isn't it? And wearing those colours. I think that's a human thing to connect to others in mm. in that way. Yeah, and
1: I think I do I think it's interesting that because like, I don't, I'm not, I am a tribal person, like, you know, my politics, sport, that kind of thing, but I've always felt, and I I don't know whether this is where some of my mental health stuff comes from. I've always been, I've always had feelings of being outsider, insider. You know, I mentioned the Scottish thing. So I've always felt Scottish, but most Scots would view me as English. Most, when I was at school, both I and my two brothers All three of us, our nickname was Jock. You know, they saw us as Scottish Uh, because we played the bagpipes and sported Scotland football and we're always banging on about Scotland. Um, Likewise, I find in in politics that um, when I go into Parliament now, I feel an outsider. I don't feel I'm part of it, but I feel that I'm viewed as part of it. Uh, And it's like... um, So I've always had that sense of being slightly outside everything. Yeah. uh, Which has got its ups and downs.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. This kind of, like, identity is huge. And there's something Mm -hmm. in that. And, like, I really... Um, I feel like I've talked about myself a lot today, Alistair. But there seems to be a lot of crossover <laughs> here. But yeah, I mentioned before, I sport Swansea. All my family are Welsh. I didn't grow up there. I'm the only one at home who doesn't have a Welsh accent. I'm, I live near Liverpool. My wife's from around here. And my kids have a regional accent. So I'm the only one at home who doesn't sound like everyone in the house. And there is there is something about that your place in the in the world and in the tribe that um, is something that comes up a lot in my therapy sessions. And uh, yeah, 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 no,
1: I've, I I feel um I've, you know I've never joined a club you know I wouldn't I wouldn't but the, the, why these clubs that people want to join I just don't get it uh I, I you know I, I so I am I, I'm tribal on the big picture kind of stuff um and I think that I think the whole sort of national identity stuff as well you know I mean I, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of my political opponents think I'm kind to of insane about Brexit but but actually that was an important you know I felt my I did feel a kind of huge chunk being taken out of my identity um in a way that, you know, hurt. And so, yeah, no, this, this stuff, this stuff's, um, I'll tell you the big thing you talk about, it, when I was, I don't see a psychiatrist as often as I did, because I, I actually saw, I saw this guy, David, who I've written about in the book, as you know, I saw him a lot after that 2005 beating up stuff. And one of the things that kept coming through with me was this conflict between, self and service constant you know um and and so what it meant for example was whether tony blair when i worked for him or gordon brown when i stopped working but he was trying to get me back in i feel this constant conflict if somebody's asking me to help them i sort of i want to do it but i know it's not going to be good for myself um and even now i get now that you know i'm doing this podcast at the moment which has got absolutely berserk you know it's like been number one for months and thousands and th- we sold out at albert hall in a few hours the other day it's crazy um, and a lot of them was uh, saying that you know we're looking to you to sort of you know give us hope and start a new party and i'm going no 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 i'm just doing a podcast i'm not i'm not you know and it's that constant conflict of feeling
0: i should but
1: I don't want to, because I know it's going to be bad for me.
0: Yeah. And it's always a tipping point with stuff like that. Right. So yeah. sometimes doing, you know, doing these things, uh, makes us feel good. And, um, you know, I always think when doing stuff for other people is huge for my recovery because, uh, you know, in when I'm in it, I turn on myself, you know, but I can't be a piece of shit if I'm doing something nice for people. Right. So that's kind of mm. my relationship. With yeah.
1: Me. Yeah. Yeah. But
0: there's always that point mm. where you, like you say, where you start giving yourself to too much of yourself. And, mm. you know, I was really interested to ask you actually how you balanced over the year. You're famous for your output. You're famous for your workload, you know, and how you've balanced that with your, with your mental health, you know, how you've rode the, the highs and lows of having so much in your life versus, mm. um, you know, this, this thing that you have to be aware of.
1: I don't really know the answer to that. I think I think now I still work hard. I still do a lot. I'm mean, you know before I was talking to you, I'm I'm, I'm working on a new uh, a new book I mean, that would be my eighteenth book in thirteen years or something. Wow. Um, I mean, you know, t- later today I'll probably watch the England game. I'll watch the Wales game, but in between I've got loads of stuff I've got to do. <clears throat> so I do. I think na- I think before I just used to power through it, to be honest, and that wasn't healthy. Now I'm much more conscious of it. I've noticed, for example, with my planning of my diary now, if I'm looking ahead for a month, I'm, I'm definitely keeping more gaps in there. Now it's partly for work. It's partly so as I can think, right, if I've got to break the back on this part of the book, I've got time to do it. But it's also, if I'm not feeling great, I can wind down a bit. Um, so I've just become better at time management, I think. Yeah. Uh, I've become better at saying no. Um, I've become better at sleep. Incredibly important. Um, and I think the other thing, you know, that lockdown was interesting because I do think that kind of key relationships are so important. And and the thing that was really amazing about lockdown was, you know, Fiona and I, we've had a lot of ups and downs, but I just felt in lockdown that, you know, well, of all the 8 billion people out there, if I've got to be locked up with one, it's probably her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, you know, so that's quite a that's quite a nice feeling, really. And it's and it, 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 it sort of, again, it may, I remember once Paul Fletcher, who's a former Burnley player, who's become a very close friend of mine, And he said, the three, what's he said? The three most important decisions you make in your life are uh, who do you live with? What do you live in? And what do you live for? And, you know, it's not a bad kind of frame that, you know. Uh, So those choices are quite important
0: yeah so it sets a foundation for everything else that you're going to you're going to do yeah definitely and um, you mentioned your jam jar before Alistair yeah. and I was wondering because um I was really, really careful when I talked to someone who like whose book I've read because it's like I know about it and you know about it but people <laughs> listening are going to be thinking like what's that so what could it? we could we break down the jam jar because I think that's an incredible uh tool and to see it like drawn in the back of the book um that was really, yeah. really useful I think yeah, well, it's 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 such a simple thing, and it, it's like it came
1: to me from this woman in Canada that I, that I interviewed for the TV's the TV program. So basically, she says, "Look, your life is a jam jar." Um, so let me get let me get something that looks vaguely like a jam jar. I've got this right. So let's let's say that's a jam jar, right? Down here, at the bottom of the jam jar is sediment, your genes. The rest of the jam jar is your life into which good and bad go billions and billions and billions of experiences and thoughts and, you know, good things, bad things. And she said, most of the time, we're all coping just about, managing all this. When we don't cope, the jar explodes and we're ill. She says, instead of trying to undo anything in here, try to build the jam jar. So it's a bigger jam jar and you put more of your life into it. So I go FFF, Fiona, family, friends, relationships, meaningful activity work and change the world if you can. sleep diet exercise uh then the personal stuff to me bagpipes Burnley, my bike, my dog just speaking German, speaking French <laughs> uh, then related to that curiosity and creativity, writing, thinking and what was interesting about when I've done it you know and as you say I've written it drawn it in the book when, when I've done it, I'm up here, before I've even mentioned medication. Whereas before I got my jam jar, if you'd have said to me, how do you look after your depression? And I said, oh, medication. Now I see it as one of many things that I tick off when I'm not feeling great. So I use this as a kind of defensive thing. I just, so the real jam jar is over on my desk over there. And, if, and I just look at it and I'll think, oh, I haven't done anything for creativity today. Uh, oh, did you, why did Why did you eat that chocolate bar yesterday? Don't do it again today. It's, you know, it's just, I'm giving myself these these messages related to the jam jar all the time. Meaningful activity, I basically, I say to myself every day, I've got to do something today that I would consider to be meaningful. It doesn't have to be, you know, I don't have to, don't have to save the world or I'd like to, it's just got to be something.
0: And, you know, I just tick them off every day. Yeah, that's a, such a lovely way to look at it. And what it really jumped out to me then when you were talking is so many of the things you are listed, it's not about um, bringing more stuff into your life. It's about, um, you know, family and sleep. And this is stuff that's, it's there for us, right? We just mm. have to like be more, maybe more aware of it and more grateful yeah. for it and make more effort with it. But it's all stuff that's, you know, it's not, you know, it's not costing a lot of money. It's not out yeah. there. We're not bringing Well, it can do, effort. it can
1: do. You mm. might say, you know, uh, Fiona family friends, oh, do you know what? I sh- we should have an amazing ho- holiday in somewhere. And you might just think, right, so it can do, but it doesn't have to. It might just be. Some days when I'm feeling really crap and I'm conscious, as I said in the past, of having been really horrible to Fiona when I've been feeling crap, I will, I will tell myself as I'm brushing my teeth, right, I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to tell Fiona in the kitchen, I'm not feeling great but I want to just say, you know, I couldn't live without you, you know, or just go and buy some flowers or just do something, you know, that says, and 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 I'm not, I'm not sort of doing it as a tick box. I'm doing it because I know if I do all of these things, when I'm not feeling great, the chances are I'll feel better by the end of it. I'll t- and I've got these post-its on my wall over there and uh, I'll just give you, give you a few of them, you know, uh, listens to the music, not the news. Uh, read books, not newspapers.
0: Mm, perfect.
1: Uh, you know, just these little things that um, you know. If 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 what's the other one? The, the other one, like if if nobody's in the way, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> that's meaningful activity. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not meaningful if if you're not upsetting somebody. You know, if everybody says, "Oh yeah, that's fantastic that you're doing that," then you know, really. <laughs> I mean, nobody in the world thinks this is a bad idea. Oh, yeah, can't be very important then.
0: Yeah, 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 that's <clears throat> lovely. I suppose it's so easy to get swept along and we need these little reminders, right? We need these little little things around us. Yeah. yeah mate that's lovely um alice i'm really conscious of your time i'm gonna ask you one more thing before i go yeah and um I, I purposely stayed completely away from politics because i don't think i'm the person to have that that conversation but i do think to have yourself on and not ask you something political would be a missed opportunity mate but oh, there's um there are, there's so many um amazing people and amazing organizations doing stuff around mental health and sometimes it feels like we're not really going to kind of get a handle on this unless things change a little bit higher up doesn't always seem like it's on many people's agendas when people are talking about what party is going to do what do you think it's it's going to take someone to come in and really kind of like commit to to mental health and to making change or where is that in the even in the political landscape you know do people even give a shit well it's really interesting because i think
1: i think we the labour government i think we did do a better job in mental health but we didn't you know, we didn't, We it wasn't, we, the health, the National Health Service was a priority within that, within the health service. I think we got mental health up the agenda, uh, but not where I would like it to be. And then, you know, to be fair to David Cameron and to Theresa May, they both at least talked the talk. They, they identified it. If you remember, uh, Cameron, uh, he, he supported the Time to Change campaign which was about giving money to a campaign to try and eradicate stigma and discrimination. Theresa May, if you remember on the steps of Downing street, she actually mentioned mental health as one of her burning injustices that she wanted to address that she didn't because, you know, like Cameron before and Johnson since she got kind of eaten up by the whole Tory divisions on Europe. Um, But I'm afraid it won't surprise you to know, I'm not a big fan of Boris Johnson. I think the real rot set in there. I think that's when it just went down the agenda. They stopped funding time to change. They stopped talking about it. They stopped really promoting it. Um, I, I regularly now will, will if I'm at a mental health thing, I'll say to people, you know, who's the mental health minister? And people don't know. They haven't got a clue. Uh, it's not a priority in government. Um, however, I write um, a column for the New European, and I've just written this week's column. And I've written about this subject because last week I was at the Bank of England Doing an event there with the governor of the Bank of England. And it's really interesting to me how some issues, look, you'd rather have the government promoting this, right? But actually, in mental health at the moment, I think the the change is still going on. Uh, because a lot of business organizations are doing it. A lot of the a lot of the big financial institutions that lost people to suicide, they've taken a completely different approach since then. To work, you know, to mental health in the workforce, in the, in the workplace, and so forth. So I still think we're making progress. I just think it would be a lot better if we had a government that actually, you know, believed in
0: this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I suppose it just makes. You know, even more important to just shine a light on all the amazing people that are out there doing this regardless, right? And um, you know, all the yeah. different charities and organizations. It's exactly. it's inspiring yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Mate, I've enjoyed today immensely. Thank you Thank so you. much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's it lovely Not to meet all. you. And, um, yeah, yeah you, good luck to you. Thank you very much.
1: All right, mate, all the best. All the best.
0: Big up to that proper mental podcast. <laughs> A podcast. A proper mental podcast.